It's 1am in Perth, 2000 in Helsinki, 1800 here in London and 1300 in Miami. You're listening to Monocle 24. Midori House starts now. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show... We must never allow political violence to take root in America. Cannot let it happen. And I'm committed to doing everything in my power as president to stop it. And to stop it now. Stop it now. And about time too, U.S. President Donald Trump reacts to the arrest of a suspect in the recent mail bombing campaign. My guests, Augustin Machilari, Paige Reynolds and Thomas Lewis, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Union bracing for another battering at the ballot box, a look at Monocle's annual travel top 50, and 200 years of people explaining, actually, Frankenstein is the doctor, not the monster. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24, right now. Hello and welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Augustin Machilari, Paige Reynolds. For the moment, we hope to be joined imminently by Thomas Lewis in our Toronto Bureau. Welcome to the programme. And we will start in the United States, where within the last couple of hours or so, police have made an arrest in Florida in connection with a recent campaign of attempted parcel bombings of top Democratic Party figures and others who have been notably critical of President Donald Trump. The suspect has been named as Cesar Sayoc, a man in his 50s with a lengthy criminal record and also also the apparent owner of a van liberally plastered in pro-Trump posters and stickers. As we go to air, and because people are insane, social media is ablaze with folks insisting that this is exactly how you would disguise yourself if you were a Democratic operative running a false flag operation to discredit the Republicans ahead of the looming midterms. Um, Augustine, obviously uh, Mr. Sayok has not at yet, as yet actually been charged, uh, never mind actually convicted of anything. Um, so there is that, but this is going to descend, isn't it, into another partisan bun fight during which people adopt positions entirely based on what they already thought? I think that's absolutely accurate. Andrew, <clears throat> this, I think, is what happens when the culture war bleeds into the material world. Over the last few years, we've seen Trump stoking the flames of nationalism and of racism. And that's played out on social media. It's played out in incidents like the Charlottesville protests where uh, extreme right-wingers clashed with left-wingers, which left one uh, dead, uh, left-winger, I should say, Trump notably referring to uh, good people on both sides. This is uh, something that Edward Luce, who's the FT's man in Washington, has has described as a kind of run-up. It's like a it's like a preview of how Trump's going to behave in 2020. Uh, Luce argues that um, then Trump is going to be about culture, not fiscal policy. So really, what he's going to be uh, running on is is a platform of of uh, what he calls patriotism, but has now essentially admitted as nationalism versus globalism. And uh, these bomb attacks can kind of be seen as an attack on globalism, given that they were sent to who? George Soros, Hillary Clinton, Robert De Niro, you know, these um, important figures who maybe have a more metropolitan outlook and have criticised Trump and who kind of represent a, 
a side of American uh, culture that, that Trump puts himself in opposition to. Uh, Paige, before this arrest was announced, it would be fascinating to know how much of advance warning Trump had of it. Uh, Trump was already at least indulging uh, the false flag narrative of this, uh, although already pictures have emerged uh, of uh, Mr. Sayok at Trump rallies as long ago as 2016. Um, so if this is a false flag operation, somebody's clearly been working on it for some years, in fact, for some years before President Trump even ran for president, which just shows you how cunning these globalists are. Um, but uh, it's the evergreen question with Trump is as far as we're able to understand anything he says or does is that what he actually thinks or does he just know that saying stuff like that winds up the people who go to his rallies uh, I, I wish I knew what he really thought <laughs> I think we all do I mean Trump is Trump is to me completely bonkers and it, it wouldn't be incongruous to the person he presents for him to really believe in those things but I think it's more important that he knows that works for his voting base. Um, I mean, the tweet that he tweeted about 3pm today, uh, Republicans are doing so well in early voting and at the polls, and now this quote-unquote bomb stuff happens and the momentum greatly slows. News not talking politics. Very unfortunate. What's going on? Republicans go out and vote. So even the fact that he's putting bomb in quotes to say, oh, you know, maybe it maybe it might not have happened or maybe we shouldn't take this seriously and then only hours later he has to actually address people and say yes this is happening and we're sort of looking into it I think that's interesting in itself um but yeah I think the idea that this has become a false flag a sort of this this whole thing became a conspiracy theory before we even really found out what was happening is quite frightening I mean uh, there was a New York Times article yesterday all about this and the fact that you know it was uh, the idea that this bomb attack was concocted by leftists to paint Democrats as violent and dirty is fascinating. I mean, these theories are bad, and that, that's, that's what's quite mad about them. But I guess it's just in the same way that we only ever read the headlines, you know, and we don't read the full story anymore. There's no need for them to really even have any remote basis. Not that conspiracy theories necessarily do, but there's no need for them to actually have a lot of meat behind them. It's just this sort of arms race of social media and who can sort of be the most tribe of of the tribe, I think, in my opinion. Uh, Thomas, joining us from Toronto, uh, obviously a notably calmer political environment. Cases like this do raise the question, as this one will go on to, about what responsibility any political leader uh, has for the actions of their, well, let's call them their more enthusiastic followers. Because even if we are to judge uh, Mr. Sayok just by the van, which is apparently his, um, I, I'm not sure that the reasonable judgment to make upon seeing it is that he is clearly first and foremost an ardent, zealous supporter of President Trump, or whether he he is clearly uh, first and foremost operating with only one oar in the water. I think, uh, you know, to sort of take a bit of a sort of step back from this and looking to a sort of domestic political sort of scene, if you like, that took place over the summer, um, you're right to say that the sort of political sort of conversation here is much calmer than the kind of rhetoric that Donald Trump likes to engage in. And I would just make a follow-up note to what Paige was saying. You know, this idea of sort of the language of Donald Trump, this is basically all he sort of knows how to do. You look at the election campaign where 
and you know frankly he no one really thought he had a chance of of winning in reality so all he did was to sort of resort back to this these absolutely outlandish kind of statements and that's kind of what is had worked for him in the campaign and that's what i think he will maybe sort of politically shrewdly think will work for him while he's president too there was a case in the summer where justin trudeau was making a speech in a town in quebec and he was heckled uh, this was quite a big story at the time here but he was heckled by someone who was an anti-immigration organizer and the the interaction got very heated and justin trudeau sort of in the course of this um uh, interaction said something along the lines of and i don't have the direct quote in front of me something like um uh, your racist sentiment doesn't have a place in canada or something to that effect i don't want to misquote the prime minister but that created a, a really huge story here because you know prime ministers leaders usually like to sort of kowtow to their voters i think it's fair to say or, or like to kowtow to those who could potentially vote for them. So by sort of using the word racist in this context to a, to a woman who is a voter um, really sort of created a big debate about, you know, when should a prime minister call out someone who sort of is saying something that jars with the political sort of ethos or ideology of the government that he's in he or she is in charge of um so i think you know having an open debate here is something that's still very much alive and when we sort of creep into this slightly more trumpian sort of discourse it very much does come alive but the both sides sort of come out it doesn't get as kind of angry and as awful frankly as a lot of the rhetoric we see from very real situations you know these 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 apparent pipe bombs you know these are these are real things that that happen to people who have been in donald trump's line of sight and his inability to address that head-on in a meaningful way i think is really troubling okay well there'll be much more on that story i'm sure on tonight's monocle daily at 2200 uh, for the moment let's look now at germany it is a little less than two weeks since voters in bavaria rendered something of a kicking unto the long governing local christian social union a sister party of chancellor angela merkel's christian democratic union the cdu will not have iced any champagne or hung any bunting ahead of this coming sunday's regional election in hesse either where a similar pasting is anticipated at present the C- present at president who writes this at present the cdu governs hesse in coalition with the green party pre-election polls however suggest a desertion of support from about 38 percent when hesse last voted in 2013 to perhaps as low as 26 percent um the thing about these things page i will put this to you is are they really that big a deal because traditionally well pretty much everywhere in the democratic world at regional or state elections or by elections in between actual national elections there is a tendency i think of voters to seize upon the opportunity to give the national government a bit of a consequence free kicking Certainly. I mean, I think in principle, when you think about a German regional election, you don't think about it having uh, a huge effect on the German political structure at large. And it is particularly surprising, I think, in Hesse. I mean, the economy is booming. uh, There's record low unemployment rates. So you sort of think, you know, why make so much hoo-ha? But these regional elections are recording historic lows for established parties in Germany's political structure and Merkel is coming up to a bit of a leadership challenge in early December. So these regional elections spell out problems, I think, for the Conservative parties at large. I mean, the Conservative Party in Germany clearly hasn't really been connecting with its long-time voter base. Um, They've had this sort of identity crisis over the immigration issue. You know, Merkel opened the borders and now they've sort of, they've been sort of pairing that back. They're trying to reposition themselves on 
on the right as their voters kind of spill into other parties such as the AFD. Um, and I think, yeah, I think... These, this could be a bit of a big deal for Merkel. Uh, Thomas, Page quite reasonably raises the point there that if, if you look at the situation in Hesse, you would think that you could do a lot worse. In fact, you could say that about pretty much all of Germany. But in that part of Germany in particular, clustered around the local capital of Frankfurt am Main, uh, yeah, there is low unemployment. The economy is booming. It's a perfectly pleasant part of the world in which to live, um, which obviously puts one in mind of Canada, where weirdly, uh, I think unusual among Western democracies, the whole Yahoo populist thing hasn't really taken root in Canada, has it? Why is that? Well, it's funny you say that. I mean, it hadn't until a few months ago when Canada, well, Ontario, I should say, which is where Toronto sits and which is the biggest province in the country, elected the most overtly populist premier uh, in sort of recent political memory here. He is Doug Ford. He is the brother of the late Rob Ford, who is uh, the very we re- controversial we mayor well. in Toronto. We do. Um, he has, in the few short months of his premiership so far, has gone about sort of dismantling Handling, uh, lots of various liberal, liberally minded things. He's rolled back uh, school curriculums to sort of take out sort of references or educational sort of tools on same-sex marriage, for example. Even there are some sort of uh, s- uh, safe sex kind of practices that have now sort of gone from the curriculums. He also sort of uh, sliced the number of councillors in Toronto by half. We've just had a mayoral election here and that caused no end of disruption to that election and also a lot of soul searching about kind of you know what kind of city Toronto wants to be and what kind of province Ontario wants to be frankly I think what's strange here is that Toronto the city centre at least is a very young a very quickly changing place and now at the top of all of that you have someone who wants to bring back you know beers that you can buy for one dollar for example those are the sort of priorities we have a general election coming up in Canada next year and I think this first pocket of populism in Ontario will be watched very closely to see how that might translate in other provinces. Quebec has just had an election uh, which also kind of upended the political order there. We see kind of the the greatest rise in anti-immigration sentiment, for example, as I touched on earlier, in Quebec. So, you know, there are lots of things at play. It's just kind of what, what kind of face that populism has in different parts of the country, because I think they are quite different depending on what part of the country you're in. Uh, Augustine, it does seem likely that Alternative for Deutschland will poll enough to get into Hesse's Landtag uh, for the first time, and that will prompt, I guess, much more international coverage than a German regional election would usually get. Do we get, I guess, well, I, 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 there's two ways around this strikes me that we now get untowardly nervous about manifestations of populism in Germany. One is obvious is Germany's history, but the other is Germany's present, isn't it? I think for, for you know, latte slurping, you know, metropolitan milk toasts such as ourselves we like the idea that germany is the last sane country left in europe and there, there would be a concern if that if, if, if that thought started coming askew yeah it's dreadful isn't it i mean <coughs> I, I actually don't drink lattes but um <laughs> you know recently the economist uh, celebrated i think it's 175th uh, anniversary of its founding and ran along and sort of fairly self-congratulatory manifesto on liberalism and contemporary... The economist, self-congratulatory, come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it kind of 
raised a few hackles around and about because the fact is that liberalism is clearly in need of a bit of it needs to look at itself in the mirror a bit and reevaluate what's going on given that these turns to populism are being so ubiquitous i do agree that uh germany's present is a much more kind of is a better bellwether uh, for worry than than its past. No one's particularly preoccupied with the idea of a sort of, what would it be, Fourth Reich? Um, it seems unlikely. Yeah, it, it doesn't. I, I think we probably need to look over the Atlantic for that kind of uh, concern at the moment. But um, yeah, it, 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 it's a bad change for sure. And it's worrying for Europe and the EU more broadly as as a structure. It, how can it survive when it's coming undone at the seams? At the same time, you know, we've got Macron in France who's trying to position himself as a potential new kind of Merkel, step into that sort of role uh, in the, I don't know, domestic international sphere. So perhaps it's just changing centres of power. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Augustin Machelari, Paige Reynolds and Thomas Lewis. Coming up next, Monocle's Travel Top 50. Curtains up. Premiering in Monocle's October issue is our very first culture preview. From big box film releases to the art market's latest moves, we guide you through all you need to watch, see and read this autumn. On our global tour, we take a peek into Helsinki's newest museum to find out how Finland's art scene is stepping up its game and consider the future of Nordic noir. Is the Scandi bubble about to burst? Not to mention more finds from Switzerland to Taiwan. In our fashion pages, our biannual Top 50 will deliver all the scarves, coats and knits you need to keep cosy and suitably sharp. Autumnal breeze or not, Tom Ford isn't afraid to bear it all. We hear from the American designer on why it's the perfect time to launch a line of underwear. We sit down with Iceland's Prime Minister to find out how the left-wing environmentalist thawed her countrymen's suspicion of politicians and get a few tips from developers and retailers making the high street worth celebrating. Plus, we meet the architects rethinking our homes for a more sustainable future. The Monocle October issue is out now on all good newsstands. Do get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. And you're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Augustin Machelari, Paige Reynolds and Thomas Lewis. Now, last night, Midori House, the building, not the programme, hosted Monocle's annual travel top 50, in which exactly that many exemplars of excellence in various fields of travel are honoured. The full list is included in the current edition of The Escapist, which remains on newsstands near you, but headline winners included Finnair, Air France, Alitalia and the Qantas Lounge at Perth Airport, among others. Here is what Andrew Fish, Finnair's general manager, for UK, Ireland and Benelux had to say at last night's event. I think for ourselves, it, it all comes down to Nordic values and simplicity. It's, it's offering a great service, um, very simply, done well. You know, we've invested a lot of money in a new fleet of A350 aircraft, and that's definitely helped. Um, but also in terms of the, the crew, the staff, all the employees at the company that are fantastic, there's a huge impetus into customer service which is massively important you know so so really it's it's all about really just doing things well creating a great um, environment and experience on board the plane 
Now, rolling shamelessly into the studio on that bandwagon uh, is our own resident Finn, Marcus Hippie. Finn Air, Marcus, your, your nation's flag carrier, were best value for long haul in our travel top 50. What is so good about Finn Air from your utterly unbiased perspective? I think Finn Air is a very, very interesting company. First of all, I have to say that I, I agree exactly what we just heard on that clip. But first of all, if we start from service... Helsinki for a long time had the reputation of having the prices of Paris and the customer service of Bulgaria. And it's not amazing still always, but I think Finnair is amazing in that they actually appreciate expertise, experience. And when you are greeted by the cabin crew, they're not always young. You actually see older individuals over there as well who are amazing in the way they approach customers, amazing in the way they treat you when you when you sit sit on your seat in that plane. Secondly... But, but what, what is the greeting actually like, Marcus? Because if I may say so, you are, you are not not renowned as an outgoing people. No, a word rarely used about Finns, I would go so far as to say, is effusive. Exactly. I, I think it's really sweet that the experience is very Nordic. They're not over the top. They're being nice to you and they, they approach you if you if it looks like you actually want to be approached by them. But the thing is that they don't come to you. They don't need to shake your hand. They need to do any of the stuff you see in so many other, other airliners. And also, they're not forced to be amazingly funny. They don't try that either. I think it's just, you know, the nice touch over there. And obviously, Mari Mekopilos over there eats like glasses, all that stuff. It's a very Nordic, minimalistic experience I quite enjoy. And obviously we have to remember the Airbus A350 planes. Finnair has been you know, buying loads of those planes. It's a nice experience. And I have to say it's great times for Finnair. They are opening new routes to Asia all the time. It's one of the biggest operators at the moment when it comes to travel between, traffic between Europe and Asia. And I know this is not directly Finnair connected either, but actually if you fly, say, from London to Japan, it takes only 40 minutes Max to transfer from one one plane to another at Helsinki Airport. It works so well. I thought you were about to say it only took forty minutes <clears> to get from London to Japan. That no. A3, that A three fifty is quick. I know, no, not that quick though. But I think it's this combo of F three fifty Helsinki Airport and all that stuff that actually makes Finn a very good option when you are considering how to go to Asia next. Um, Paige, looking through the top 50 as a whole, it's another bad year for Ryanair. Um, but, 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 did, it's always a bad year for Ryanair. Uh, did, did, did any other themes or points leap out at you? I think I think generally, I think there's, uh, and I, I totally agree with it, there's such a focus on um, kind of getting rid of all the fuss of travelling. I think travelling can be really quite stressful if you're in, if you're in the wrong airport with really awful transport links and you've got unhelpful people i think fuss-free really efficient travel is something that i that i really really enjoy i mean i always love it when you actually get to an airport and you know there's just a, there's a light that shows you exactly where the trains are and there's a travelator that goes straight down there and you just get on and there's no sort of like there's no manicness and i think i think that's something that the travel top 50 the efficiency and the sort of the clean process was definitely focused on being in the wrong airport is definitely not <laughs> far from ideal. Um, you know, I was I, I, I was lucky enough to be at the awards last night, and it was really interesting. I think some of the the, the things that kept coming up were, um, you know, attention to detail was like a, a key point. Everyone who won won a prize because they, in some way, have encapsulated like 
attention to detail, which is so important, whether it's Lufthansa with its like lovely little yellow wrapped chocolates that they give out to all their flyers, or whether it's Finnair with this kind of customer service mandate that's really important. And, you know, that was another theme. Uh, the middle house in Shanghai won uh, for the most convenient in-room feature. And that is, might sound banal, but that's a light pole that just turns off all the lights in the room. And while that's kind of quite an obvious thing to have you know as as hotels move towards automation as things become more technical you know being presented with an ipad which flushes the loo turns on the tv and turns off the lights is not necessarily what people want so actually just having one light switch that turns off all the lights is kind of ideal for the weary traveler and that's what it was focusing in on it was focusing in on this move away from you know automation this move away from tech the tech landscape which is infiltrating every kind of corner of our lives and societies towards a more bespoke service more personable uh people employed by these groups and also you know on 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 the hospitality as a kind of as a, as a really good career option for people you know that was the thing that came up too and sometimes i really feel like you know when you when you deal in different places sometimes i'm like do you not think about the customer experience at all I actually got into a fight online fight with Heathrow airport officials <laughs> uh, last I, I, I year. had such high hopes for I, where that was going I, I landed <laughs> quite late from Helsinki and you know I had to go queue for about half an hour because they only had three of these electric gates open and they had been building them for ages and they had like 15 more and I was like why don't you have them all open as we always do in Helsinki and they were like oh this aren't those like rules I never got a proper clarification but they were just saving resources Mm. Okay, well, that complete list is in, we reiterate, The Escapist on a newsstand near you. But finally tonight, minutes of desultory research has failed to determine whether there has been a spike ahead of this year's Halloween of sales of Frankenstein's monster costumes. If such has been the case, it would reveal a commendable grasp of the history of English literature, for this year marks the 200th anniversary of the publication of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, lots of books get written, Paige, um, and most get forgotten more or less instantly mine for example um, to endure to endure for 200 years is is no small change why has Frankenstein lasted this long I think the thing with Frankenstein I think it's um, very impressive that it it very much crosses two genres so while it's often seen as horror it's actually the first work of science fiction um, okay. that was ever written and I think this idea of the limitations of science um, is something that has endured and will continue to endure. I mean, we're still trying to work out whether we should clone or whether we should create humans from dead humans or versions of ourselves. It's still a really big moral and ethical question and this idea of playing God. Um, so I think that, you know, Frankenstein embodies both horror, something that's, you know, uh, an incredibly popular genre, but also the idea of how, you know, science is placed in society. Um, Thomas, moving to the fact that it is Halloween on Wednesday, are, are you approaching the great date by acknowledging the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein by, you know, whacking the bolts in your neck before you go out knocking on doors? Uh, I'm actually dressed as Frankenstein as we speak, actually, <laughs> uh, with the bolts firmly in place. Um, again, the Halloween. F again, yes, it's just how I keep going in the morning. Um, I feel as though the Canadians, you know, embrace Halloween as much as their American neighbours. The porches of my neighbours' houses are bedecked with skeletons and pumpkins and all the rest of it. Um, I'm not sure if they're 
being particularly literary minded about it and perhaps it would be a nice sort of fun fact at this weekend's Halloween parties over drinks and punch and the the rest of it that Frankenstein is indeed 200 years old this year um, I think what you find though here is that they tend to be slightly topical about their their costume choices uh, obviously some in better taste than <laughs> others uh, but you know there is a slightly sort of newsier angle to uh, to Halloween costumes here for example uh, the year that uh, Mitt Romney was running for president lots of people went as binders full of women if you recall to Halloween parties <laughs> across the US so we'll see what takes on the news of the year that the Halloween parties of Toronto will go for this year uh, have either of you here in the studio Augustine or Paige in recent memory actually dressed up as anything in an attempt to solicit candy or sweets or whatever you people call them from your neighbours mm, no I don't think trick-or-treating is encouraged when you get past sort of 14 and it's kind of an imported thing anyway isn't it in the uk it kind of is but it, it has it has caught on can i just before we move on from <clears throat> frankenstein really quickly note one thing which Please i do. think is really important which is that frankenstein was written after percy shelley mary shelley and lord byron all sat round on a dark and grim night and had a competition to write a ghost story. They did. Not to really hammer the point home, but to go back to what we were saying just now about technology taking everything over. Nowadays, we're sitting around with our mate and his girlfriend or her partner, whatever. We just stick on Netflix. <laughs> There's no creativity happening. Nothing's coming. And that's, you know, that says something grim about the, uh, about the, about the kind of, you know, the world the world we live in what would you dress as andrew um i i thomas lewis probably yeah the scariest costume of them all a really a really quick note though on on frankenstein and dress up is that when you think about dressing up as frankenstein you think of bolts and that kind of green paint but that frankenstein wasn't like that in the book he wasn't green that emerged from the sort of uh, these trends of horror comics in the 60s and there weren't any bolts in his neck he was pretty much like near perfection he just was eight foot tall which is i Think he was a doctor, were. wasn't he? Well, he was, and that is another important point. Victor <laughs> oh. Frankenstein, of course, created Frankenstein's monster. Thank you for the clarification, yes, Augustine. Well, Always on, appreciated. Uh, yes, so. uh, on that note of Frankenstein's planning, uh, that does bring us <laughs> to the end of today's show. Augustine Machilari, Paige Reynolds, Thomas Lewis, and briefly Marcus Hippie. Thank you all for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusta Pacheco and Barbara Baimoni. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. More music next. At 1900, I think I'm right in saying it's Marcus Hippie with the menu. There's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. I'm your host for that as well. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. Funny how many people get these things 